If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn with me to Luke chapter 10 this morning. And when you can join us in Luke chapter 10. I know some of you uh, continue to rustle pages, which is uh, music to my ears, but some of you now swipe and click for your, uh, your book, uh, your Bible, and for your taking of notes. And uh, I do want to let you know that we are trying something a little bit different uh, this week. If, uh, if you do take notes on your phone or on a tablet device, uh, we actually do have the notes online electronically uh, through a website called Uversion. You can find the link to that from our church Facebook page. Although if you link from the Facebook page, please do not continue to look at updates uh, for the next uh, 40 minutes or so. Uh, but uh, if you have the Uversion Bible app, you can get to it from that by going over to uh, the left-hand side, uh, clicking the, the options panel and going down to live, and you will see uh, the church notes there uh, with this title of today's sermon, One Thing is Necessary. The, the biblical text is there as well as space for and out, the outline and space for you to take notes. And so if this proves to be a helpful thing, we will continue to do it. If none of you decide to use that, that's not going to bother us one bit, but we're going to stop spending the time to, to post it and put it up. So... Uh, for those of you uh, in the uh, living in the 21st century and uh, enjoying it, then uh, that's there for you, and, and I hope it's helpful. We do come to an important passage this morning. In fact, one that I cannot help think is part of the reason why we've had uh, a little bit of technical difficulty. Uh, my pastor growing up used to always say that you can always count on two things to be possessed by demons, church buses and sound systems. And uh, perhaps we've seen evidence of that this morning to throw us off our game. Nevertheless, let's quiet our minds and our hearts and give attention to what God would say to us today. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 38. Now, as they were on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. I know at least one woman who probably tenses up every time she sits in church and hears that passage read. Because as someone who has a heart for God that is displayed in uh, a, a deep and abiding level of Martha-like service, she has taken more than her fair share of lumps as preachers seem to deride her, talking about meatloaf Martha and marvelous Mary. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're the same way when this passage or perhaps a Proverbs 31 passage about the, 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 the perfect and wise woman comes out, you're immediately squirming in your seat because you feel like, I don't match up. You perhaps even feel guilty because you don't match up. But in your mind, you're thinking, how could I match up with all that I have to do as a woman in this modern day and age? I have a job to do. I have kids to raise. I have a husband to look after. And perhaps you're seeing these examples and you're believing, I I'm not making it. I'll never be able to make it. How can you when you've got so much going on? Moreover, when you read this passage or hear a sermon on it, you may be thinking to yourself, but can't God use my gifts? I have gifts of hospitality. I have gifts of service. But here, Jesus seems to be saying those things aren't important. Why do my gifts get lowered to the second tier of Christian service? This morning, if that's the kind of thoughts that you have when you see a passage like this, if that's the kind of emotional response, let me just say, take a deep breath. 
sit back and relax. Because we're going to talk about service, we're going to talk about hospitality, and we're going to talk about why Martha was rebuked, but we're going to see much more than that. Furthermore, if you're a guy here and you feel like this has nothing to say for you, it does. Because what we see in the course of Luke's gospel, this becomes one of the key passages about Christian discipleship itself. Regardless of your gifting or your gender, this is a crucial passage on understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and how to thrive as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Specifically, it's about making sure that we have right in our minds and our hearts and our priorities the one thing necessary to grow and mature as Jesus' people. And so you can understand this passage, we want to unpack it along four lines. First, we want to see how Luke shows us the equality of discipleship. The equality of discipleship. This is something that, frankly, we could have been looking at at several places along the way in Luke's gospel. Uh, it's not necessarily the, the primary point of the passage, I'll tell you that up front, but it becomes a, a huge theme that runs through Luke that doesn't really show up all that much. Uh, in the other Gospels, although it is nevertheless present. And so we want to just pause here and make the point because it's so obvious. Again, uh, what we're saying here isn't just for women, but we need to point this thing out, namely that there are women who are disciples of Jesus Christ, even good, growing, mature disciples of Jesus Christ. Notice what Luke says, that Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, we hear that and we may not think anything much about it, but you have to understand, in, in that day, it was revolutionary. It was amazing. It was, un, it was unheard of and unthought of. Many of the rabbis simply believed women didn't need to know theology. They had no use for it in their daily lives, so they wouldn't teach it to women. Some rabbis allowed women to come and to study the Old Testament scriptures, but they specifically forbade, we're told, what Jesus allowed, namely women to sit at their feet for formal instruction. And yet here's Jesus in great contrast. He not only permits such active learning, but he encourages it. And as we'll see in a minute, Mary's actually held up as an example for the disciples to follow. Yet this is something I think probably most of us miss when we read this. Because of our own cultural conditions, we're, we're much more tempted to think about what women can't do than what they can do and how amazing it is what we see in this passage. So for example, when, when we come to a text like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, we, we immediately begin to wonder, well, what does this have to do with, with life today? How can God's word be saying this? Some of you know that passage, some of you don't. Here's what it says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet in the church. Now, again, we hear that and we think, well, what's Paul's problem? What, what does he have against women? Is he, is he sexist? Is he just a product of his times? And we don't have the time, frankly, to unpack that in its fullness this morning. But if you care at all about the authority of God's Word, if you believe from Genesis to Revelation that it's true and right and good, then we have to ask some tough questions about why that's there and what do we do with it. And the first question you ask is, why is he saying this? How does he ground what he is saying? And notice he goes on to the very next verse and says, for, in other words, here's why I'm giving this command. Adam was formed first, then Eve. What he's doing there, in short, is grounding his statement about the authority of women in the church and the authority of men in the church in creation itself. It's not merely cultural. 
But again, what are we tempted to do in the first century is jump on submission and miss the word learn. Learn. You have no idea what that was like, how liberating that was in Jesus' day. And frankly, throughout all time. Even today, you've got many Muslim women who are not even permitted in the same room as Muslim men. You have Mormon women. Their only hope of heaven is to be married to a Mormon man. Which is why, although it's not publicized in the family-friendly context, but there reaches a point where women attending the church are actually encouraged to divorce their husbands if they're not going to join me. Otherwise, they miss out and they can't go to heaven. In contrast to all of that is Jesus. And Paul is saying, even in 1 Timothy, there is an essential equality in men and women at the feet of Jesus. All of them can learn in the same way. All of them can grow in the same way. All of them can be mature and godly in the same way. The only difference is the expression of their giftedness and the exercising of authority. So don't miss this element in Luke's gospel, even here in this passage. Here is something that would have not been seen in any other Jewish context for sure, and that is a woman encouraged to learn and to become a disciple, a committed, educated, theologically astute disciple of Jesus Christ. Even today, there is a real sense in which that pushes us to think about how we not simply provide leadership in the church, but the various opportunities that we have for men and women to learn and to be learning, which is part of the reason why we're offering the classes that we are this year. Nevertheless, as we think about not simply Mary's position, Martha's position as disciples and the equality of discipleship, now really getting to what is the major emphasis in the text, we need to understand the potential for distractions in discipleship distractions in discipleship. The other day, Melinda and I were, were talking while she was driving uh, home. We were talking on the phone, not via mental telepathy. And um, uh, she's driving, we're talking, we're having this whole conversation. I don't even, honestly don't know how it got started, but we were having this huge conversation about the, the, the decline, overall decline of the academic life of students in this country. I heard an interview that basically said, without a special uh, student slash work visa, America would no longer be on top of its game anymore. For the most part, Americans born and raised here are not the ones that are pursuing uh, higher education to be professors, to be scientists, to be doctors and physicians on the cutting edge. We are bringing the best and the brightest from the world here, teaching them here, and then keeping them here. And we thought about even the kinds of things that our grandparents could do. Uh, Joshua was reading Runyard Kipling for school, and, and Melinda talked about how her grandmother had massive amounts of, her, of his poems committed to memory. The Declaration of Independence committed to memory, even in her 60s and 70s, being able to recite those things. And we're, we're thinking, why the decline? And we are certainly no experts on culture and life. It's simply by way of observation that I made the point, I think one of the key reasons is we live in an age of distraction. We live in an age of distraction, unlike any other time. First of all, we have this thing that was originally called the information superhighway. You youngsters call it the internet. And you have virtually limitless information at the tip of your fingers from every direction. Nobody bothers to exercise memory anymore. Now, Now, where was that in the Bible? No, we have our phone out and we're Googling it. And we're searching to figure out where it is immediately. We have computers and devices that beep and boop and signal at us 24-7 so that there's no time for quiet and reflection. Not to mention the amount of television that comes 
constantly now with a 24-hour news cycle. We are never away from entertainment with the push of a button or the turning on of a screen. Now, I'm not saying that all of those things are inherently evil, but what I am saying is it leads to a massive amount of distraction for us. And we have to learn to quiet ourselves down. But at the same time, what we need to understand is, even apart from all of that, the danger in discipleship is that it is much, much easier to be distracted. What we see here, even in the first century, even in the course of just a few minutes, probably less than an hour, someone goes from expressing deep and abiding love to Jesus from ordering him around. Why? Because she was distracted in what she was supposed to be doing. When it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to living as a disciple of Christ, it is easy to become distracted. And then we are not doing what we should be in terms of believing in, living for, and serving Jesus as we should. Listen to what Luke says. Martha welcomed Jesus into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. First of all, notice that she was distracted by service. She was distracted by service. Jesus shows up and immediately is invited in, is treated like a typical guest in some ways. Martha begins preparing a meal and makes Jesus feel welcome as her guest, if not a member of the old family, uh, her own family. We read the end of the Gospels, and what we see is, especially in John's Gospel, Jesus knew Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus really, really well. In fact, they loved him, and, and he loved them back. They loved one another. And so what we see here is that there's nothing wrong in what she's doing. She's displaying her affection for Jesus in this service. So the difference here between Mary and Martha is not like Cain and Abel. It's not like she's doing something inherently wrong. In fact, uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, we see hospitality is held up as the goal of all Christians. Paul directly tells, doesn't suggest, he tells the Roman believers, seek to show hospitality. Every single one of us in this room in some way is to seek to show hospitality to one another. Peter puts the service in a broader context. In 1 Peter 4, he says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. What's my point? My point is this. Martha was trying to do the right thing. In fact, she started out doing the right thing. It was a way to minister, a way to serve. And if it had been done with the right motive, it would have been worship to God. But here was the problem. She allowed that very good thing to distract her from the most important thing. She allowed that very good thing to distract her from the most important thing. Luke says Martha was distracted with much serving. Being distracted means you're aiming at one thing and being dragged away into another. You start off in one direction and either end up somewhere else or nowhere at all. And that was Martha's problem. She loved Jesus. She maybe probably even intended to, 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 to start out doing what Mary herself was doing, listening to Jesus' teaching. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that when Lazarus does die, and you read this in, in John's Gospel, that, that Jesus shows up and he's weeping with them and, and he looks at Martha and he says, he says, do you believe that you will see your brother again? And she goes, yeah, on the last day. Here's, here's a lady who grasps the concept of resurrection when there was an entire group of Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, who denied it. They denied any afterlife and they're leading Israel's spiritual life. And here is little old Martha who sat at the feet of Jesus and learned, just like Mary, 
yeah, there's a resurrection, and I believe one day I will see Lazarus again. And of course, Jesus says, you don't have to wait. Let's see him now. And he calls him back from the dead. So again, the point is not, oh, Martha's just doing her thing. She's just serving. That's where it's at. No, 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 no. This is, this is one area where her gifting is, and she's doing something good until she becomes distracted by it, until it becomes all-consuming, and she forgets what the most important thing is. Spurgeon gets it right when he points out Martha lost her focus because she became consumed with simply doing things for Jesus when she should have been more worried about being with Jesus. This problem of distraction by good desires causes even more problems, though, because when Martha got distracted by serving Jesus and failed to look at Jesus, she then became distracted into sin. She was distracted by service, and she became distracted into sin. Notice what happens after she becomes distracted. Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Now let's work through this for a second. Her distraction from Jesus led her to be anxious and troubled about many things. Once she got going, she couldn't stop. Well, well her, she had taken her eyes off Jesus and now she becomes consumed with her service. She becomes consumed with what she's seeking out to do, with getting things done, even good things. And that led her to be anxious and troubled. She was worried and Jesus makes it clear that's one place that God never wants us to be in a state of anxiety and worry. But then that anxiousness led her to self-pity. It starts in her mind and exits through her mouth. She comes out. Can you imagine the scene that Jesus is, is teaching she comes out and she yells and interrupts him. Do you not care? It's all me by myself in that kitchen slaving away. I'm working my fingers in the moan and here's my little sister out here just lapping up your every word. Tell her to get her rear end in the kitchen and help me do some work. Martha began to feel sorry for herself. Look at me. And no one appreciates what I'm doing. I, 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 I'm laboring to make a meal for Jesus and for the 12 guys he brought with him into my house. But nobody cares. It's just me. She feels far, sorry for herself and wallows in self-pity. And we know what that's like, don't we? Particularly in church work. But not exclusively that. Some of you, some of you moms and wives know what that's, what that's like. To feel as if no one appreciates the work that you're doing. But it applies to everyone, whether it's serving our family at home or serving God. We look around and no one else seems to be doing what we're doing. No one seems to appreciate what we're doing. And we're tempted to be filled with self-pity. And if it's not dealt with, our self-pity will turn just like Martha's into resentment. Martha doesn't just wallow. She begins to resent the fact that she's working alone and she decides to do something about it. She comes out and she yells at Jesus and tells him what he ought to do. Do you not care that my sister's left me alone? So then, have her help me. The, the implied response is, yeah, he's going to care. And so now you care that I'm doing this by myself. Here's what you should do. Tell her to help. After all, it wasn't fair that she was doing all this work by herself. Now, have you been here before? I mean, have you been in Martha's position like, for, like this before? Have you thought these things? Have you said these things? I have. I have. And more, more often than I care to admit. But notice how easily she got there. This wasn't hours and hours. This wasn't days. This wasn't weeks. Just a few minutes. 
Pastor Kent Hughes explains how Martha is just a picture of many of us. He says, there's a tendency for people who are wound tight like Martha to give everything to their particular area of calling or interest and to allow that interest to so dominate their lives that they have little time for God to speak to them. Without the benefit of the word, they adopt a mindset of narrowness, judgmentalism, or fault finding, and eventually the creativity and vitality they once gave to their area of ministry sours. There was a time in, in just my own life, in my preaching ministry. I remember very distinctly going back at a vacation Bible school and um, went and taught all the different grades, the Bible lesson, and so we decided to teach the nursery kids that year, just a, a little five-minute talk. I remember Pat was, was working back there and someone else was working back there and Rebecca was like maybe uh, Ellie's age. And, and, and when I was done and I was trying to be animated for the kids, um, the other person said, wow, that was amazing. I wish you showed that much energy when you preached. And at first I was a little offended, but then I kind of chuckled and I walked away and I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought about it and she was exactly right. Because of circumstances at the church and in my life, I had become soured in my ministry. It was no longer a joy to stand behind this desk. I was faithful in it, but it wasn't joyful. And that was a turning point in the weeks that came. And now some of you regret it because I am the animated wild man that I sometimes am now. The point is, it's very easy to become consumed with, with anxiety and worry and self-pity, and then resentment, and then you're completely soured on ministry for God. What's the cure, though? What's the cure? What, what took place in my life? What does Jesus show to be the cure here? Here we have to remember the priority in discipleship. The priority in discipleship. Martha interrupts Jesus' teaching tells her that he needs to tell Mary to get up and help her. She's gone from gracious host to grumbling malcontent, and it's not pretty. I just imagine, I had this vision of, of Peter with a piece of bread halfway to his mouth. As she comes out as yelling at Jesus, like, now what do we do? <laughs> Jesus says that all this had happened because she was distracted from the priority of discipleship. So what is this priority? It's Jesus himself. Do you notice the pun? Mary has chosen the good portion. What's a portion? It's a meal. She, he's saying, you're working on the, on the kitchen portion, but Mary has picked the better portion, me. I'm the priority. How is this seen in two ways? First of all, we see it in the priority of his lordship. The priority of lordship. Notice the difference from, if you were here last week or if you've read Luke before, the previous encounter Jesus had with someone in Luke 10, just before this, the lawyer, an expert in the Old Testament who was standing before Jesus trying to put him to the test. He should have been bowing down in the presence of Jesus, knowing the scriptures were pointing to him. He was an expert in them. And instead he was trying to justify himself before God. Now in contrast, here's Mary. Jesus comes into her house and almost immediately she is sitting at his feet listening to his teaching. Luke even signals what is taking place here, the essence of his importance, because he stops using Jesus' name and begins using Jesus' title. Did you notice that? Jesus is the one who entered the village and was welcomed into the house. But Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Bon Mary's body language conveys this. Her attitude reveals this. She is one under the lordship of Christ. What does that mean? Legan Duncan says this. 
A disciple who is under the lordship of Christ is a disciple who acknowledges the authority of Jesus and drinks in his teaching. A disciple is not telling Jesus how much he or she thinks it ought to be. A disciple has his mouth closed and he's drinking in every word that comes from the Savior. That's what a disciple under the lordship of Jesus looks like. If my Lord, if my King is speaking, then I want to hear what he says. I want to know it, I want to believe it, and I want to do it. That's what we see displayed in Mary here. That leads us then to notice the further aspect of the prayer of discipleship. And frankly, I almost preached this point in the first point, and I caught myself because I had it here, the priority of learning. The priority of learning. Let's be clear, we're not talking about learning just for the sake of learning. We're not talking about sitting down and and listening to a TED Talk because the subject matter piques your curiosity. We're not talking about learning something to have a good discussion. When it comes to Christian discipleship, we're talking about learning truth for the sake of transformation. We want God to change us. We want Him to change us into the people that He wants us to be. People that know Him and love Him and serve Him and worship Him and even look like Him in our godliness. We're talking about knowing the Word of God by the power of the Spirit of God so that we can be transformed into the image of the Son of God. But at the same time, we must be clear, change, real spiritual lasting change does not happen apart from learning. Apart from the engagement of our minds with God's truth. You cannot catch godliness like a cold. If I just hang around someone and they cough on me, I'll get it. I'll pick it up. Nor can you simply develop Christ-likeness because you feel affection for God. You see, some people love the idea of spiritual maturity, but they never have it because they just like the idea of it. They like feeling close to God, but they never actually work at getting close to God or being changed by Him. Growth and godliness, spiritual maturity, conformity to Christ, intimacy with God, the Spirit-led life, whatever you call it, it comes by learning the ways of God through the Word of God. So Jen Wilkin reminds us of this. Scripture teaches clearly that the living and active Word matures us, transforms us, accomplishes what it intends, increases our wisdom, and bears the fruit of right actions. There is no deficient. There is no deficiency in the ministry of the word, but there is often a deficiency in us in not taking it up. That's why the snapshot of Mary is so helpful and important. It portrays an image that conveys the very definition of New Testament discipleship. What is a disciple? It is someone who learns from Christ. They learn his ways. They seek to imitate his life and follow him in serving God. And you get that in that picture of this young woman sitting at Jesus' feet, hanging on his every word. How does this happen? Just as Jesus said at the end of Matthew. Make disciples by teaching them to obey all that I commanded. Isn't that what Jesus himself says about discipleship and making disciples? Learning about God is how we come into a relationship with God and how we grow into our relationship with God because faith comes by hearing the word. And that's not just faith for salvation, that's faith for everything. If you want to deepen in your faith, you expose yourself to God's word. That also leads into effective ministry. Jared Wilson is right when he says, it is impossible to have a relationship with God without studying his word earnestly. And... I will be best equipped to love others 
and being a loving God, glorifying relationship with them if I am full of God's word. So how am I going to serve God as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a friend? How are you going to serve in ministry, on the job, at your family, at home? Very poorly if you do not remember the right priority of discipleship. If you don't sit at the feet of Jesus, you're going to get distracted by all kinds of things, maybe even the right things, and find yourself with a tired, discontented soul. There's a reason why the airline tells you when the plane depressurizes, the masks fall down, you put your own mask on before you help somebody else, even if it's your kids, your most precious loved ones, because you can't help anyone if you don't have oxygen. You can't help anyone if you're not breathing. And if the presence of God and His grace is the spiritual oxygen that we need to live and thrive and grow, it does not matter how many hours you put in at this church or with your family or in serving God in any other way if you are not breathing deeply of God's grace. If you are not sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking in His life-giving, transforming Word. A couple of weeks ago, I was sharing with our women's leadership class how privileged we are as God's people today. We have a Bible in our own language, freely and legally available. It's in either cheaply bound or beautifully bound volumes. But best of all, we know how to read. We actually have a high literacy rate in this country. So today, as we sit even in this room, we are able to do what most Christians around the world throughout history have not been able to do, have a Bible at home for personal study. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we forsake what is expected and commanded in the Bible, the gathering together of God's people, the coming together for reading and the study and the application of God's Word. So here, let me just be blunt and let me ask you a very direct question. What does your attendance at the gathering of God's people say about the priority of Jesus in your life and growing as a disciple of Him? What does, what does your regular presence here say about Christ's lordship over your life? Now don't try and escape that question by thinking that I'm motivated by the offerings or by my or this church's reputation. That's nothing. That's nothing. I have no person in mind. I have no axe to grind. I simply get the privilege of sitting up here week by week. And what I see week by week is, is full and empty and full and empty and sometimes in between. And I'm asking the question that all of us have to ask of ourselves at some point, if we're honest and are people of spiritual integrity, am I missing the point? Am I failing in the priority of discipleship? Being together with God's people at the feet of Jesus to hear His words. Now the answer is, what if you are missing it? What if whether it's in your attendance or in your daily life that I, I, I've, I've missed the one thing that's necessary? I filled my life up with a lot of good things, family, ministry, but I'm missing the one thing that's necessary. What do I do? Then what you need to hear and be encouraged by is Jesus' invitation of discipleship. Jesus' invitation of discipleship. What I mean here is his willingness to receive you back and to be with you. First of all, we need to be invited by Jesus' teaching. We need to be invited by Jesus' teaching. Frankly, I don't like that keyword teaching, but uh, I couldn't come up with anything really else, so you'll get the point of it, I think. What I want you to do, though, is notice what Jesus does when he gets there. 
Martha is not done with the meal. The food is not on the table. Maybe she set out some bread for the disciples who seem to always be hungry in the Gospels. But Jesus doesn't care. What does he do? He goes right to teaching. He just gets, he just gets right into it. It's like, this is what I'm here for. And I love the eloquent way Matthew Henry comments on this. He says this, It seems our Lord Jesus, as soon as he came into Martha's house, even before entertainment was made for him, addressed himself to his great work of preaching the gospel. He presently took the chair with solemnity. In other words, he showed up and he started teaching. He started preaching, started saying, this is what it's about. Here's what God's word says. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's how you need to live. It's the reason why the, food, the, field, the, uh, the meal's not done and Mary's already there at the feet, taking it all in. She's latched on to the one necessary thing. And my whole point here is to say, if Jesus was so eager there to be pouring into the life of his disciples, to be teaching them, to be transforming them, I know he is going to be eager to do that with you today. You say, how do you know? Because he told us, not in this passage, but later, after he's died on the cross for our sins and he's raised back to life, God, through his son Jesus, speaks once more to his church. In Revelation 3.20, you may not know the reference, but I know you know the verse. We have a precious promise of Jesus' eagerness to teach into our lives. There the risen Christ says this, Behold, look, take notice, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now this passage is often used in evangelistic context. There's a principle there that, that makes that okay. But the original context is a church that's lost its way. It, it, it's a church that is now filled with people of lukewarm faith. They're not that rushing, hot, cleansing water that you like to take a bath in or mix your coffee in. They're not that ice-cold water on a refreshing day. They're right in the middle, the kind that you take a drink of and you spit out of your mouth. And Jesus says, that's, that's what you're like right now. That's where your religion is. That's where your faith is. I want to spit you out of my mouth. You think that you're prosperous, that you're rich and you have no need of God. But Jesus says, spiritually, you're really wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You have no spiritual resources outside of Jesus, and yet somehow they have come to believe they can live their day-to-day lives without him. So here is the picture. A church gathering together week by week, and yet Jesus on the outside knocking. Can I come in? Can I, can I come in and be with you? I'm here. I'm waiting. You have this great meal for me, and I'm not there. But Jesus says he's eager to be there. He wants to be there. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. How do we, he's knocking, but notice he says, hear his voice. How do we hear his voice? It's through his word, through him speaking. Jesus says, you may have drifted, you may be far, you may have forgotten the one necessary thing of discipleship, learning from Christ, being transformed by Christ, but I'm right here waiting. You say the word, and I'll be there with my word, ready to teach. We should be invited by Jesus' teaching to come before him in a renewed relationship, and we should also be invited by Jesus' love, by Jesus' love. Earlier we said that Martha had love for Jesus, that Jesus had love for her, and here we actually see the love that Jesus had for Martha displayed. If you blink, though, you might miss it. 
He doesn't just say, Martha, you're anxious for many things. Notice what he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled for many things. You see, in the ancient Jewish world, this was a sign of deep affection to say someone's name twice. It's because the Hebrews didn't have good, better, and best as verbal forms, okay? It's good to have something good, but really good if you have something better and fabulous if you can have the best, right? They don't talk that way though. So what they do is they just repeat the word for emphasis. So who is the most holy being in all the universe? The Lord, who is holy, holy, holy. Likewise, when you want to show concern or love or affection, you repeat the person's name or their position. So when David is mourning the death of his rebellious son, his son who who tried to kill him and take the throne, and yet he dies in his rebellion. David calls out in 2 Samuel 18, Oh, my son Absalom! My son, my son Absalom! What is he saying? Though you rebelled against me, though you tried to take my life, though you tried to derail God's plan, I love you for you are my son. When Jesus looks over Jerusalem, the capital city of his people, at the end of Matthew's gospel, He mourns their lack of faith. What does he say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus says, I am am your God and you are my people. I would have gathered you to myself and loved you and cared for you. But in your sin, you turned away and you were not willing to receive me. Likewise here. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, me, and it will not be taken from her. I will not tell her to get in the kitchen and help you, but I think Martha, Jesus is saying to Martha, but Martha, you can come out of the kitchen and you can sit here with your sister, and you can have the good portion too. I love you. I care about you. And I want you to have what Mary has. So if you're here this morning, you feel like you've drifted far from God, if you feel like you've failed in living up to your profession of faith as a disciple of Jesus Christ, or maybe you've never confessed Jesus Christ, maybe you're here and you say, I don't know what all this church and Christianity stuff is about. Here's what you need to know. Jesus loves you, And he is eager to have a relationship with you or to renew the relationship that you've once had. And if you ever doubt his love for you, if you ever doubt his eagerness to do anything for you, look to the cross. Because it was there that Jesus set aside all the glory that he had. He gave up the privileges of heaven. He took on flesh and became human like us. And he went up on a cross and he hung there and died. Not just a physical death but spiritually under the wrath of God for sinners. He bore the punishment we deserve for our sins so that God might look at us and be able to say, your sins have been punished, but I can still forgive you because the judgment has fallen on another. Never think that, well, how can Jesus love me? He's already demonstrated his love by giving up his very life for you, by by taking hell for you on the cross. And now don't be like Jerusalem. Don't be like Jerusalem who loves their sin more than God and refuses the affection and the grace and the mercy that is being offered, but rather see Jesus eager, standing, ready, willing to be with you, to dine with you, 
to have intimate fellowship with you that you might be transformed by his word. Just before going to the cross, the same Mary at the end of John's gospel will defy cultural expectations and cast off all concerns about her reputation as she kneels down before Christ. She breaks open a bottle of expensive perfume likely being held for her wedding, maybe even her funeral, pours some on his head, and then dumps the rest on his feet, takes down her hair, and begins cleaning off the feet of Jesus. The disciples were astonished. Judas shows his greed by complaining about the waste of money, but Jesus says, no, this is a display of her love for me, extravagant worship of me. Some of you say, I I don't think I could ever do that. I don't think I could ever be so unconcerned for what people thought of me so as to be thought perhaps that I was a whore pulling down my hair before men in public or wasting such a huge amount of money seemingly in the worship of God. But here's the thing, Mary is no better than you. Mary is no different than you. She arrived at that moment at the end of Jesus' life for one reason. Whenever she could, she was willing to sit at his feet and listen and learn and be changed. So this morning, that's the invitation that I have for myself and for you, that we would remember the one thing that is necessary. There's lots of other good and helpful and right things that we can do, but one thing that is necessary for Christian disciples to sit at the feet of Jesus. Father, we pray that from this passage that we would see clearly, Lord, what you call us to, the immensity of the grace that you display in calling us to yourself and, and, and having an intimate fellowship with us that results in us coming to look like you, the one true and living God. As our sin is cleansed and righteousness has grown and developed and matured in our character. Father, may we desire that this morning. May we repent if we have not desired it before today, if we've needed to be reminded of that. But God, help us. Oh, help us be encouraged to know that you are ready to receive us, that you are eager to begin teaching us, that you love us, God. If we ever doubt that, remind us of the cross. God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name, the one who went to the cross for us. Amen.